Good morning. First Baptist Church and the rest of you in Azel, we want you to know that you're welcome here every Sunday at First Baptist Church. My goodness, what a blessing. You know, every year, we started this last year, and uh, God gave us a beautiful day, and somebody, or not somebody, a number of people said to us, well, why don't we do that next year? And I thought, yeah, right, it, it, like we're going to have perfect weather next year. And uh, look what God did. What a beautiful morning it is. And uh, that's purely God. We don't have any say over the weather, and uh, so I thank him for that. I'm glad that you're here today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. We're going to look at one of the most powerful and controversial statements in the Bible made by Christ on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. All right, we have our bleachers full even today. How about that? Matthew 27, 46. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these powerful words today, help our hearts to understand, our minds to accept your mercy and your plan for mankind, for our lives. We thank you and praise you for your Son, in his name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been forsaken? Has anyone in your life ever turned their back on you? ignored you, or abandoned you. And many of you know what that feels like, for someone to abandon you in their life, to turn their back and walk away. The verse that I read is both heart-wrenching and confusing to many people. Jesus is dying on the cross, and we, as you know, there were seven statements that he made while he was on the cross during those hours. He only spoke seven times, and this is one of those seven statements he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus say that? He had always said, I and my Father are one. Had God forsaken Jesus? Did God the Father turn his back on Jesus? I've heard that before, that Jesus was taken upon himself the sins of the world. God the Father couldn't bear him in his sins, seeing him in his sins, and he turned away. Well, to answer that question, if God had done that, God the Father, you need to understand something about Christ's statement on the cross. And that is, as you may know, it was a quotation from the Old Testament. The first verse in Psalm chapter 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? So you may say, okay, he's quoting scripture. Why? Why does it even matter that it's an Old Testament quote? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. First, you need to know this, that in the day of Christ, the Old Testament had no chapters and no verse numbers. Did you know that? The Old Testament had no chapters, no chapter numbers, and no verse numbers. 
Now, the text is identical to what it is today, but back then there were no numbers for, for the books and no chapters. And so quoting them was a bit of a challenge. <clears throat> so when people wanted to talk about a particular passage or a particular chapter, like Psalm 22, they would quote the first sentence in that chapter. That's how they discussed it. So when Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, on the cross, he wasn't quoting verse 1. There was no verse 1. That wasn't added until the 1500s with the Gutenberg Bible. Did you know that? After the printing press, that's when the chapter numbers and the verse numbers first appeared in the Bible. And so when Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, they didn't know it as Psalm 22. They knew it as, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when Jesus quoted that first line of that chapter, he was quoting the entire chapter. He was referencing the ch chapter in its, in its entirety. So if you want to understand what Jesus said on the cross, you have to read the entire psalm of Psalm 22. For, for the first sentence, all those in between, and the last sentence. How critically important it is to understand the entire psalm. Also, you need to understand this, that Psalm 22 in its entirety is a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his victory over death. More about that in just a minute. Second, remember that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it is filled with prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, Zechariah, even Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, many others. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies, at least 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. He is the most prophesied figure in all of history by far. Now, Psalm chapter 22 tells us vivid details about what happened or what was going to happen on the cross. First, in Psalm 22, we see the purpose of the cross the purpose of the cross. If you look with me in Psalm 22, verse 16, we're going to go down to verse 16. It says this, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast for my lots for my clothing. So Jesus actually says about five things there, and they're really, really very important in Psalm 22. This is an amazing prophecy. First, it was actually written by David a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Let me say that again. This psalm was written a thousand years before the crucifixion. Is that not extraordinary? Because it is so vivid in its detail of exactly what happened on the cross. You may be thinking, well, David maybe was talking about himself or somebody that he knew, but we know that's simply not possible. First of all, we have a lot of information about David in the Old Testament, and nowhere in his life that this, just does it describe anything like this. We know he didn't die this way, so he couldn't have been talking about himself, but he wasn't talking about somebody else either. And you know how we know that? Because crucifixion had not been invented yet. It was between 300 and 400 B.C., that the Persians invented crucifixion. And remember, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Christ, six to 700 years before crucifixion was even invented. Is that not extraordinary? And so 
it, it would be hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion, and yet this psalm vividly tells us that his hands and feet were pierced. So we know David wasn't talking about David or anybody else that he knew. He was talking about Christ. Now, to what extent David understood that, I don't know. I, I, I doubt that as God was inspiring him, David was probably scratching his head, perhaps, thinking, what does this mean? I don't even know, but God had him write it anyway. You may be asking the question then, why a cross? If it describes the cross and the crucifixion, why a cross? Why did Jesus have to die at all, let alone a terrible death like crucifixion? Well, the New Testament tells us in many passages, like Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I heard a story once about a little boy and his father were driving along one day. It was a beautiful day, about like this, and so their window was down in the car. A bee came into the car was buzzing around and it terrified the little boy because he was deathly allergic to bee stings. And so he starts screaming and crying as this bee is buzzing around him, fearful that in any moment he was going to be stung. When suddenly his father, realizing the terror of his son, reached out and he grabbed hold of the bee as it flew just for a few moments. And then he released the bee and the bee began to buzz around again and the boy began to cry again until his father held out his hand in front of his son and opened his palm and there the boy saw the stinger of the bee embedded in his palm. And he said, son, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared anymore because I've taken the sting for you. That's exactly what Christ did on the cross. And exactly what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Paul triumphantly asks, Where, O death, death is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, here's what he's saying, and let me, let me mention the last part first. He talks about God's wrath. God's wrath is simply justice. You get what you deserve. And you may be thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person, so I deserve pretty good things. And that's what we say, is it not? We have this crazy idea, and I don't know where we got it, maybe on television, I don't know, but we have this crazy ideal that if we do more good in life than bad in life, somehow the good over, overcomes and we get like a passing grade. If we're 51% good and 49% bad, we still get to go to heaven. Where did we get that idea? And by the way, who is making that judgment? Well, usually we are. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You, you think to yourself, well, I'm not that bad. So here's where we get this idea that we're not that bad. What we mean is we know other people that are a whole lot worse than us. And we judge our goodness by their badness. But on judgment day, it won't work that way at all. God is the judge. 
And God has already said, our sins deserve judgment. And that's what he's talking about, about the wrath of God. So here's what he says, since we have now been justified by his blood, that is, Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins. He says, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? It literally talks about us spiritually, eternally being saved from our sins. You don't have to be good enough. Now, I'm not telling you to go out today and be as mean as you want because Jesus died for you. But I am saying that you and I don't have to strive all of our life to be perfect in hopes that it might achieve for us salvation and eternity in heaven because Christ did that for you because we can't do it ourselves. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the purpose of the cross. It also says a word about the power of the cross in Psalm 22, back to our passage for today. And again, Jesus is referencing these words when he makes that first statement on the cross. Psalm 22, 27 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. Here Jesus is on the cross and he's referencing these very words that says God is in control and all the people on the earth are going to come to God. David had no idea what that even meant. It's a prophecy. It says it will happen. Did you know right now in 2022 how many countries in the world have no Christians at all? The answer is zero. Everybody, according to to Wikipedia, every nation on earth has believing Christians in that nation. Is that not extraordinary? Every nation, every country, every people group in the most Muslim countries, the most communist countries, everywhere there are believers in Christ. God has saturated the world with his gospel and his glory. Now, not everybody are Christians, of course, but there are Christians everywhere. And so he's making this prophecy, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Certainly on judgment day, it is certainly true. Every name will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians chapter 2 as well. It's the power of the cross, the power to transform Many years ago, there was a barber's union in Chicago who advertised, this union advertised, they had a, an, a, an account or, or a, a, an agreement with a particular soap company to promote a particular soap among all the barbers, but they, they endorsed this particular brand of soap. And so they said this soap would do wonders to anybody who used it. And to illustrate, they went down to Skid Row and they found the filthiest drunk they could find. And they brought this drunk into a barber shop and they cleaned him up. They, they shaved him and they lathered him up with this special kind of, of soap. And they, they cut his hair and washed his hair and cleaned him all up so he looked good. And then they took him down to a particular hotel. And this hotel exclusively used this particular brand of soap. And they had him take a shower and they cleaned him all up and they got him clothes and shirts and socks and all, a suit, all of which had been cleaned in this particular brand of soap. 
And then they showed him to the world and to the newspaper, and it went out all over the country and said, this is what this soap will do. It will make you a whole new person. So that's what they did. They said, see what we've done. We made a new man with our soap. But about a week later, page 13 of the local newspaper carried this comment. The man made over by the barber's union was found last night on Madison Street, drunk, dirty, and disillusioned. The wisdom of man fails when it comes to making a new man. But God can. There's something transforming about the cross. By the way, and there are members of this church, both that you can testify this has happened to you, but also you've seen it in others. God can transform lives. I've seen people hit rock bottom, and you probably have too. And they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and God changed them into a new person. Only God can do that. Only the blood of Christ can do that. You can read any self-help book in print. You can go to any seminar. You can meditate until your legs go numb. You can buy wrinkle cream, expensive cologne, hair dyes, and teeth whitener. You can take multivitamins by the bottle full and even eat kale. But only Christ has the power to make your life brand new. It also tells us of the power to forgive. Let me ask you, is there a particular sin or sins that haunt you more than others? Particular sin or sins in your life that haunt you more than others? Sins that have held you, held you down, that shackle you. Sins for which others have judged you. Christ died to completely remove those sins. The Bible says that God will forgive your sins and separate your sins as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more. They will be gone and you will be forgiven. Only God can do that through Christ. True freedom isn't found in a constitution. It's found in the crucifixion. True forgiveness isn't found in a courtroom. It's found on a cross. Did you know that the ruins of a castle that overlooked the village of Dernstein, Austria, it is called the Kruenringer Castle. It was destroyed in 1645, but no one calls the castle by that name. Everyone calls it the Richard the Lionheart Castle, Richard, Richard the Lionhearted Castle, because he was held prisoner there in the year 1192. The castle isn't remembered for its owner, it was oddly enough remembered and made famous because of its prisoner. And so it is with the cross. The cross itself is just a cruel means of execution, but you wear it on gold chains around your neck and you see it in beautiful artwork because it represents the person that died for your sins and my sins on the cross. Because freedom only comes through the forgiveness of God through Christ. We see the purpose of the cross, the power of the cross. And then in Psalm 22, we see the praise of the cross. In chapter 22, verse 23, again, Jesus is referencing these words. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Again, this is Jesus on the cross making this reference. You who fear the Lord, praise him. 
All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Doesn't sound forsaken to me. There are times in your life and my life we may feel that God is not there, but God wants you to know he is there. He hears your cry. He hears your prayer. He knows your need, and he loves you. And so Christ is saying, God is there. Doesn't turn his back. He won't forsake you as he did not forsaking, forsake him. Again, these are the words of Christ, his reference on the cross. There was a famed preacher and author named Charles Spurgeon. And speaking of Psalm 22, he says, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the picture of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the vessel of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. Before us, he says, we have a description of both the darkness and the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace, he says, to draw near and see this great sight. We see the purpose, the power, and the praise of the cross. And finally, we see the promise of the cross. And I will read to you the end of Psalm 22. You cannot read the first part of Psalm 22 without reading the end of it. Here's the last few verses. This is verse 30 and 31. It says, Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They, future generations, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is a victory psalm. It starts out at the bottom of the pit, but it ends up on the highest peak. Jesus is making this victorious statement on the cross. And all the religious leaders knew Psalm 22. They knew it well. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying while he was dying on the cross, that God has brought victory through his death. David had no way to understand this statement, for he has done it. He didn't know what he was writing. He even states it's for a future generation, but we know exactly what it means. We find that description a thousand years later in John chapter 20 at the tomb of Christ early on Sunday morning. I want you to think a bit of this as you look at the tomb behind me. John 20 verse 14 says this, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. This is at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. She sees Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And in verse 15, woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The most beautiful word in all of time is the word Mary. Not because of her, but because it was the moment that she realized the impossible had happened. It was Christ's pronouncement to the world, Mary, I'm alive. I'm not in a tomb, I'm resurrected. That's why we celebrate Easter. Not just the cross, it's the tomb, the resurrection of our Savior. In 1875, Philip Bliss was near death when he wrote a hymn. 
It was his last hymn he ever wrote, the last hymn he ever sang in his life. A few weeks before his death, he visited the state prince, uh, prison at Jackson in Jackson, Michigan, where after a message on what he called the Man of Sorrows, he sang this hymn with great effect. Many of the prisoners dated their conversion from this very service and this very day. Here are the words to that hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Do you know Christ today? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? I want you to know God loves you. He doesn't want you to die in your sins. He's a righteous judge, but he is a gracious judge. He wants to give you a new life and a new heart through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can allow God to give you a new life today, right here, right now. Pray with me. Father, as we come into your presence right now, you are on your throne. Your son is there. Your spirit is there. You are exalted and lifted up. You are our creator. Everything that we see, the birds that we hear, the trees around us, the grass beneath our feet. You made it all. But Father, we know that you are more than creator. You are our redeemer through Christ. You knew when you created Adam and Eve where that was going to go. You didn't make them to be imperfect. They chose to do that because you're transcendent. You already knew. They made poor choices and we've been making poor choices ever since. Your word calls that sin, and we know that sin separates us. It separates us from one another. It separates us from you, both in this life and in the life to come. But you love us, and you don't want us to die in our sin. You don't want us to be separated from you. So you sent your one and only son, a part of you, to die on the cross for our sin, paid the penalty for our sake. As your word says, for you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Father, we believe that. We claim that today. And we praise you for that. If there be one here who's not given their life to Christ, may this be the moment. Right there where they are, if they will confess to you these words and mean them in their heart, Dear Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe that you died for me on the cross in my place for my sins. And I believe in faith that in three days 
you came back to life. You walked out of the tomb and you're alive today. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. As you're praying, did you pray that prayer for the first time? Right now, are you willing to surrender your life to Christ? It's not just confession, but it is absolute surrender. That's what lordship means. Will you be willing to surrender your life to Christ? I'm going to be down here at the front. We're going to have a, a time of invitation. People will be praying. And I want to challenge you, if you gave your life to Christ this morning, just come forward and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ. That's all you need to do, and I'll pray with you. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I challenge you to do that. And you say, Pastor, why should I do that publicly? Everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. He said it this way in the Bible, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Would you be willing to do that today? No one's looking around. As you pray, would everyone stand? And as you stand, as you continue to pray right now, you come.